again, all my fabulous listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Glow S podcast, where we're here to chat all about the delights of sex, sexuality, and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and as always, I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, as it really does help to keep the mics on. Or if you like, you can pop over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to get in touch about the podcast, you can drop me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at Glow West Podcast. So we are seeing so many headlines about the world of dating after COVID or well, we're kind of still in COVID, but we're kind of pretending COVID is not really a thing when it comes to dating. So I was really interested in looking at the history of dating because obviously it's quite different now than what it used to be. And I have the perfect guest to discuss this with me today. Today I'm joined by Nikki Hodgson, who is an author, broadcaster and dating consultant living in London. As well as covering sex and relationships for The Guardian, BBC and Sky News for 10 years, she is a former men's health agony aunt and has been a Silicon Valley matchmaker and dating consultant for a number of international apps. A former dominatrix, she wrote Bound to You about her experiences. She now hosts the Bisexual Brunch podcast and her latest book is The Curious History of Dating from Jane Austen to Tinder. And there's a world of difference in between Jane Austen and Tinder. So Nikki, thanks Amel for joining me. How are you keeping? I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I know, delighted, delighted. I think it, like your book is so fascinating because there's such a difference in dating. And I don't think Jane Austen would have considered unsolicited dick pics on Tinder as part of her dating experiences back in, when was she around? 1700s? Around 1750, yeah, 1750s. Yeah. yeah, I think Jane Austen would have made short shrift of lots of these people sending dick pics. Unsolicited dick pics is what we need yes. to say, isn't it? Because we don't have a problem with dick pics. We just take care of you send us one when we're not in the mood for it Absolutely. or we haven't asked for it. So, yeah, going back to Jane's time, I mean, I suppose one of the most important things to remember about the 18th century and dating was that women in particular still couldn't uh, inherit things from their family and keep it. And this meant that you really had to make a good match when you married because otherwise you would be penniless. So if you go back to those Jane Austen novels, there's so much about, oh, what's his fortune? And you know how much does he have a year? And what kind of property or estate does he own? And therefore, what will you have? And also it mattered the other way, if you were a rich heiress and you were bringing money and property to your marriage, well, that became your husband's upon marriage. So it was really important that you didn't marry or meet a cad. Well, it was all right to meet one, but you had to get rid of him pretty quickly. But you couldn't marry a cad because sometimes your whole family's fortunes rested on you not doing so. And so it wasn't until about, I think it was 1860 when the so-called Married Women's Property Act came in, in England and Wales. I'm not sure about Ireland, actually. It'd be good to know the difference. But um, that that really drew a line in the sand as regards what women owned and retained and, and as regard their romantic options. Because if you were thinking about, well, I've got to marry well because all my family's welfare is dependent on it it would have made quite a difference when you were coming to pick someone, right? Absolutely. Like, talk about pressure. It's not just like, oh, am <laughs> I in love with this person or not? It's like you've got generations of wealth to try and protect from gold diggers. And like you said, cads, which I love that description. <laughs> it's a good word, right? It's yeah. good to, I think it's a word that we should resurrect because it yes. does quite accurately describe certain people on dating apps and oh, in the dating yeah. world now. But we, we've sort <laughs> of let them get away with it. But I think we should bring it back. Yeah, no, definitely. I picture like, 
like a top hat or something involved. <laughs> always a good hat. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody in a, in a big hat is always assigned to me as something narcissistic or troublesome yeah. going on there. But hey. <laughs> yeah, it's a good marker. But and, and then so talk to us about how women met men back in those days. So it was Lonely Heart ads, but there is also a social stigma around it that you had to be a good girl around and you couldn't possibly see be seen as like soliciting out there so it's it's, a, it's like a lot of hurdles to overcome for these women yeah I mean if you watch a Jane Austen serialization or a film or you read one of the books of course the emphasis is on is on the ball culture the coming out at the balls and the going to the local balls and that was the only chance you got to meet local bachelors but that really was just for the middle class and obviously women of a slightly lower social status, if they didn't have the money for, you know, the kind of finery and the coming out celebration, well, they would revert to Lonely Hearts adverts. Of course, very working class women couldn't write that some of them weren't literate, so they didn't use the Lonely Hearts ads. But if you were lower working, uh, if you were lower middle class, you probably would have done. And it's funny that Jane Austen never writes about them actually, because they really were around during her time. And I wonder why she doesn't. I'm, I've always yeah. been curious about that question. But actually, if you go back to the Times newspaper and then a little bit further on at the beginning of the 19th century, what we call matrimonial gazettes and um, these publications that basically you could advertise yourself in as a single person looking for love. Well, you, you posted an advert through a P.O. box, you know, like the good old 1980s <laughs> when people used to do that. But actually, you know, these these ads have been around for more than 200 coming on 300 years now wow. and and what you would do is you would say something in Jane Austen's time like um woman of a comely demeanor demeanor sloping shoulders would like to meet gentlemen with average five thousand a year they were very to the point about the what they looked like but also what money they needed to have a good life okay. and again this comes back to this issue of the married women's property act as in like you had to secure your financial future right but they were, they were very, very short and very pithy and very to the point. And sometimes they would include uh, illustrations or drawings of themselves because of course they didn't, you know, Kodak, the camera wasn't invite, wasn't invented until the 19th century. It wasn't, the, it was the Victorians that had yeah, photographs. Okay. But even in the 18th century, they were thinking, oh, well, I need to include some kind of image of myself so that I can persuade someone to, you know, write back to me. Okay. And it's a bit like, I know that if you go a bit further back to Henry VIII, you know, he, I think he saw Anne of Cleves through a portrait that was done by Holbein, didn't he, notoriously. And this is the reason why he married her and then, or agreed to marry her. And then when she arrived, she had pockmarked skin and he didn't really know what she looked like because he'd had this picture of her instead of the real, the real representation. And obviously a lot of PR that had been going through Europe. So obviously get up to Jane Austen's time and this idea of um, having a decent, reliable illustration came to pass because you know, local gossip or even gossip across the counties would reach the person in question if you didn't tell the truth about what you look like. Oh, but it's interesting, interesting that they, they did have a sense that actually we have to include some kind of representation of what we look like with these adverts. They didn't always do it, but if they had the money to have a really good portrait commission, then they get a little sketch in along with their letter. Wow. But the other thing is for women, they couldn't pick up the, the replies to their posts themselves because they were through the coffee houses in London and the major cities and women weren't really meant to go there by themselves. So they would get a trusted male envoy to collect the responses for them and then bring them back. So if you think about that whole process, 
quite arduous, but would have been quite exciting waiting for the PO box person to come back with your replies to your little ad. And is there going to be a gem there? Is there going to be a potential husband in there? I think it must have been quite in, yeah, my, I would have been quite enthused about doing yeah, it that way. It's better than bills in the post anyway. It's definitely <laughs> better than council tax bills and all the rest. Yeah, yeah definitely. I love the idea of like a little, little cottage industry of illustrators for dating apps just springing up of like, you know, like illustrations or us or something. And you know, right. they, they might try and put a little bit of a filter and a little bit of a positive glow <laughs> on, on your thing. So filtering before filtering became Filtering before filtering. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> it's really important to remember this stuff when we talk about modern tech and how it's atrophied our relationship with relationships and how we present ourselves because the reality is people have always been censoring self-promoting doing things to make themselves look better to their potential matches and so you know the equivalent of paris filter you know from instagram there would have been an equivalent of that but we just don't really know that much about it or talk that much about it that's wild isn't it yeah and well something that we we don't know as much as we like to think we do is about the victorian time because i think we we make the assumption about victorians quite a lot that they're very prudish and you know they had to be covered head to toe and there was no sex and everything was quite staid and they're all very easily shocked and what's the common myth that you had to cover up the ankles on a table or right. else they'd be freaking out about that but in your book you're saying that's not actually the case no, it's not. So it's really interesting when you go back to examine the Victorian era now, because so much of what we know about the Victorians has been told to us by generations after. So in the thir in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, researchers were coming up with these ideas about the Victorians. And in a way, they were really to kind of offset their crisis around relationships and sexuality and the difficulties they were having. It was much easier to designate the Victorians as the all-time prudes and then attribute a bunch of stuff to them. And I know um, Foucault, the, the philosopher, talks a lot about this, how we've we've basically written off the Victorians as a group of people that didn't want anything to do with sex. But the reality is quite the opposite. They were actually talking a lot about sex and investigating a lot around how they should categorise certain kinds of people and what their sexual proclivities were. And as a result of that, people actually talked a lot more about sex and relationships than we think. The chair leg covering of the, an the ankle chair leg covering story is really interesting because that actually belongs to the Americans in the 19th century. Okay. They were the ones that were more prudish about sexuality. And what happened is we had these buccaneer brides that were Victorian age women in America who had loads of money and lots of grace and they had lots about them but they didn't have any titles and they decided that what they would do is come and marry some of the british aristocracy who were penniless and they were sitting on these kind of crumbling palaces but they didn't have any kind of ready revenue and it was kind of the perfect match so if you've ever watched downton abbey the series uh lady cora is actually a buccaneer bride who comes to kind of bring money to okay. to her partner so you know looking at that period we have just so many ideas. I mean, like one of the things that I came across in the book when writing the book was that I think in about, yeah, the mid 19th century, one third of all working class brides walking down the aisle were already pregnant. And we have this idea that everybody in the Victorian era had no sex, definitely no sex before marriage. And that just wasn't how people lived because people have always had sex. I mean, you'll I know, mean, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Why not? I mean, you'll know and I'll know, but it, it's just, it's just really funny how we've decided that that was this kind of era where nobody did a bunch of stuff 
and all the evidence like we know for example that the queer community which was you know struggling to meet for obvious reasons at that time you know still illegal to be homosexual and there was still a, a law in place if you were well they were having secret drag balls in parts of london and they were still finding ways to meet and i didn't get more into the drag balls but i'm absolutely gonna do because i oh just think God, it's so so do. fascinating yeah that sounds I'd incredible love, yeah i mean i just love to see if there are any early portraits i mean yeah. we said like we know from that era that we have found photographs from the era of like gay and lesbian couples and of people that are transgender so you know there's lots of evidence to suggest what we know about the victorians or we think we know isn't actually that accurate wow oh i'd love to see the fashions of the ball that would be incredible yes and if people yes, like definitely. wore big coats and then the second they get into i safe, think they must have done unveil unveil everything that sounds amazing well and, yeah. and you're right like one fact in your book that was surprising to me is that the victorians basically invented valentine's day cards so they must yes. have been quite open about sex if they're sending cards to each other and stuff well i think one of the really important things about the victorian era especially in western europe was the marriage between queen victoria and prince albert and how that colored people's attitudes to relationships and sex so what we know is that at the time that they married it would have been seen as kind of amazing this love match you know where queen victoria had picked prince albert and that was quite well known it wasn't the other way around he hadn't necessarily wooed her she really went after him and then when she was with him she had these diaries which obviously we didn't find out about till later but she wrote in quite a lot of detail about how passionate she was about him and it's a bit euphemistic but there's definitely suggestions of how much sex they had and how much she fancied him she had all those children for a start obviously not all of them survived but you know she left a lot of evidence to suggest that she was really into Prince Albert and so it was after you know we'd had the enlightenment so we were moving into an era we'd had Jane Austen's time and we'd had the Married Women's Property Act so we were moving into a time where women could start to think about the possibility of loving the person they married and this was quite a unique and new thing but the queen really set the tone for it and obviously we had the industrial revolution people were moving out of the country into the cities that was giving women in particular many more chances to meet men in real life because they were going on steam trains for the first time they were going on uh, trams they were working with them and basically you couldn't keep a kind of cover on love anymore you know it was kind of bursting at the seams so actually it would have been in some ways quite a romantic age despite the poverty despite the disease despite this lingering sense that things were moving too quickly and the cities weren't the best place to be yeah but if, at least like if the women had that freedom if they weren't like living at home until they're palmed off to some rich guy you know they have a bit more independence and a bit more chance to live a little before dating so I suppose that's like singlehood gets embraced a little bit more in in that kind of aspect of times so that's fascinating but then I'd like to move us on to like World War One and, and I suppose World War Two as well to a point that single nature was obviously a lot more enforced because a lot of men obviously went off to fight and then there's a whole generation of men that died obviously in, in the wars so women were just kind of left to their own devices and obviously entering the workforce as well and gaining the financial independence so how did dating fit when you have this whole missing generation of young single men who would have you know met with those women in those times yeah again so it's totally fascinating we have this you know if you think about 1914 to 1918 you think that it's another land the past is another country as we say and you know everybody was buttoned up still and then they were kind of thrown into you know working in the factories to help with the war effort and the reality was that 
because of the First World War, we got rid of chaperones. So up until that period, women couldn't go anywhere without a male chaperone, really, or a good woman couldn't. So there were lots of women that did. Again, working class women didn't have the option a lot of the time. But actually, middle class women always went somewhere with a chaperone. And then, the, you know, how many millions of men disappeared overnight to the front line? And all of a sudden, you just didn't have them anymore. So that went out of the window. And two really important things happened. One was that when the men went to war, there wasn't necessarily an expectation that they would come back. So women were writing letters to multiple soldiers and they were basically you know, doing what we do now. They were dating multiple people effectively and seeing who would come back that they could marry. And it, you know, it was more in the second world war that you had wartime weddings. That wasn't really a thing in the first world war as much. People married at the beginning and they married after, but they didn't really marry during. Then in the second world war, you know, people would get leave to come home and marry for the weekend, have a bit of sex, go back to fight the Germans again. Okay. But um, <laughs> thinking about the first world war, the other thing that happened is that women were thrown together for the first time. So because they were working, they were sometimes cohabiting with other women. For the first time, there were things like secretaries, teachers, working in shops, moving into cities and doing these jobs. And if you were a bi or lesbian woman, well, you had a wealth of options that you yeah, didn't have before. Days. And there was nobody watching anymore. So there was a whole co cohort of women that were having bi and lesbian experiences. Maybe they didn't identify as those sexualities, but they were definitely having the experiences. And we've lost a lot of, you know, people didn't write letters because they were all being very secretive and there's not much literature or, or kind of evidence around that, but there's lots of hints that that's what people were doing. So then, you know, eventually men did come back and then they were sort of like, oh yeah, I'm meant to get married, so that's what I'll do now. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's what that doesn't, do. yeah, but that doesn't yeah. mean that there was this kind of like, there's this kind of hidden generation of queer activity amongst women and women that happens at this period. That sounds fantastic. But again, yeah, looking at history, like they would have said, oh, women had lots of female friends at that time. They're all very friendly with each other. Very friendly, because you get <laughs> these clips, don't you, in historical dramas where they're all dancing with each other because there's no male partners at the tea dance. And I just think if you, I mean, I'm bisexual. I just think that sounds thrilling. Like yeah. if you didn't, if there were no men around, then you finally you had, you know, Edith or Deirdre yeah. or whoever was just yours for the next two years or whatever it's like winning the lotto it's like happy days <laughs> for like yeah. all your pickings i mean I, i'm not trying for a second to you know <laughs> undermine the terrible effects of war and how horrible it was to live through that period but actually for some women it might have been quite enlivening yeah and, and a bit of freedom to explore their their yeah. bisexuality or um queerness you know in in freedoms times i suppose for the first time mm. outside of families and stuff like that well and also possibly without um syphilis and um the diseases soldiers brought back from the wars um that obviously changed a lot of dating habits and things like that i know like ireland had like a really bad problem with syphilis for quite a long time actually we're currently mm. in the middle of a syphilis outbreak here so if you're listening please do get tested but how did all all the soldiers come back with all their sexually transmitted infections change <laughs> that 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 little dating experience so there was yeah. a thing called the Defence of the Realm Act that was passed in Britain and it was really to cope with VD as they called it then, venereal disease or STIs as we call them. But, uh, you know, it basically became a crime to infect a soldier and for him to take an STI back to the front line because syphilis was killing not as many people, obviously, as fighting, but syphilis was, lots of people were dying of syphilis. And I actually suspect that lots of people that died in battle were probably dying of syphilis or died of syphilis, actually. So it was one of those things that kind of covered up. It's obviously much more honorable to die in battle at that time. 
But the fact was, you know, there was some, there was a big debate about transmission in France that soldiers were then coming back to Britain. You know, they apparently they were sleeping with sex workers, at the, at, which at that time wouldn't have always had the best health conditions or living conditions to operate under. So they were catching STIs, but it was more to do, you know, it was equally to do with the soldiers as it was to do with anybody who was sex working and they were sleeping with. So yeah, it became a crime. So then it, uh, we had this, very interesting clampdown on women's sexuality in the 20s and 30s as a result of what had happened during the war and some of it was linked to the suffragettes so what we think about the suffragettes is that they were just fighting for the rights of women to vote and um you know they were they were bombing things and uh, going on hunger strikes and all the rest of it but in the 20s and 30s they formed these alliances which were quite puritanical and were designed really to stop women having sex in order to stop the the uh, transmission of venereal disease, as we as they called it. And so there were these women called the interfering toads that were related to the suffragettes, and they were like a a body of women that would literally go into parks and pit with torchlights and literally pick apart copulating couples. Wow. And um, that's a, an interesting hobby to have. Yeah. <laughs> and because because what we forget actually about the suffragettes is that, you know, the slogan votes for women, which you often see uh, yeah. represented. The full slogan originally was votes for women, chastity for men. And we never oh. talk about that because obviously, it's, you know, it takes away from obviously the fantastic things that the suffragettes did for for women. But men not having sex and men not causing trouble by sex was a really big focus of theirs. And then invariably, it was the women that carried the shame still at that time and got the punishment for it. So it's a really odd period of history because, again, we don't really talk about it very much. But the reality is that women were often paying the price for men's infidelities. Uh, yeah, that's a bigger conversation than <laughs> um, extends into many spheres. But I suppose like that phenomenon of the war really made it that people recognised, OK, there is such a thing as STIs and we do need to do something about it. And recent inventions such as the condom started to be acknowledged as a way that actually, you know, we can do this. Like I have creams at home that are for, given to soldiers and they're like mercury filled creams that you rub on right. your penis. And it's like, that's not a good idea. That is so. not going to work. No. But hey, I guess they think nothing else is going to work so because yeah. I think isn't it true with syphilis I mean if it's untreated you can hallucinate and yeah. you can have it goes yeah, into your so brain completely yeah. so I guess the mercury maybe got there at about the same time but was slightly different yeah, I don't it's, know it's, it's not really worth thinking about it's not about, a good combination for your no. poor little brain or no, definitely not but then like combined then with like that condoms being like socially acceptable and widely available and then if we go into the 60s obviously the pill came out and those two inventions I say revolutionized dating for you know well it has been for decades of, of like mm. casual sex kind of really became a thing and sex outside of marriage became so widespread and like the free love concept in San Francisco and things like that became a lot more widespread not not so much in Ireland we we uh, were a bit later to that aspect of things but I'm sure in the UK it really changed things well actually you make a really good point there because in the so-called provinces in England and Wales and Scotland actually you know, those messages of free love and going for it and having a good time, they didn't really reach as quickly. And I know this from anecdotal uh, second-hand experience. My mother, for example, who grew up in Yorkshire, where I'm from, um, she tried to get the pill prescribed to her in the 70s when she was engaged to my father. She got married very young at 17, but I think she probably was about 16 when she went to the doctor. And the doctor just refused to give her the pill. And this was the early 70s. So actually, 
the ideas that we have about um, the 60s and the revolutionary effect of them, they didn't really move beyond London at the time in the 60s. So, you know, you, you had people like Mick and Bianca Jagger having, you know, an, an interracial relationship and that was heralded as kind of future of love or Jimi Hendrix or that these people were just, you know, in a very, they were really situated around Carnaby Street and the kind of clubs of the time. And so lots of those socially acceptable ideas in London, my dad went to art school uh, in the 60s in London, lots of the things that he thought were fine when he came back to Yorkshire actually weren't in Yorkshire. So I think it's quite interesting when I have talked to both my parents, my dad sadly isn't around anymore, but they have, they had very different experiences of the 60s and 70s, you know, yeah. until they got together. That rural so. and urban divide of mm. the, the bubble and access to services and the anonymous, exactly. anonymous nature of like a city yeah. as well, that you can kind of get away with a lot more without Joe and Mary down the road gossiping about what you're up to and things like that. So exactly. Yeah, that, I mean, it's an interesting time period because like we hear that of like, yeah, free love and obviously those messages don't come out as, as much. And like you said, in, in other parts and communities and stuff but a lot of it is kind of behind closed doors as well so you know in in the 1970s section of the book you're talking about the wife swapping parties and yes. um swinging and things like this and this is something that's always promoted as oh my god that's all that went on in the 70s and I'm sure we probably did other things but um this seems to be in, in countrysides as well it's not just a city activity yeah. so to speak yeah, the 70s is really, the 70s section of the book is quite fun. There were some really, to me, quite silly things that I uncovered. So there was this couple that were swinging. It all got a bit complicated in their relationship. So there was this couple that were in a caravan and they, were, they had some other friends in a neighbouring caravan. And I think they'd kind of probably got a bit drunk and agreed to wife swap and then it had gone a bit wrong or somebody had started to freak out. Because I think one of them threw something at the caravan, like maybe tried to like petrol bomb it or something absolutely ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> and the reason we know this is because the story reached parliaments. There was a debate in the Houses of Commons about wow. <laughs> is, that, is the whole of England <laughs> wife swapping, basically. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to dig it out because I didn't have time in the book to go into any more detail. But I, I mean, would... that went like drastically wrong from sex drastically to petrol wrong. Bombs. Drastically <laughs> wrong. Quite but an if I had the, Exactly. If I had the time to actually rake through old 70s versions of a Hansard and see what the right <laughs> honourable gentleman ended up debating that day in Parliament. Wow. I think it'd be really funny. Definitely. Well, and uh, is it true that myth of like, you know, if you had a pineapple in your house, that was that symbol of <laughs> your being a swinger? I think for some people they say it's like they're having pampas grass outside your house as well. Just all these little like symbols and signs <laughs> of these secret worlds that I love. Yeah, again, I didn't get into much detail about it because the chapter goes quite quickly, but and I also talk, ended up talking a lot about Mary Whitehouse, bless her, um, or not bless her as the yeah. case may be, who was the first kind of official British censor and just spent all her time pulling down things that she thought were nefarious and wrong. But um, yeah, that, I think the pineapple is really interesting because I know from the 18th century that pineapples were put outside Regency homes because they were seen as a sign of hospitality. So if you extrapolate hospitality, that it's mean, sort of like yeah. you've access to everything, including my <laughs> wife. I don't know. It's quite funny thinking about it, isn't it? It makes a lot of sense if it is the pineapple. That's, wild, That's funny because my husband bought me a pineapple. We're monogamous, but my husband bought me a pineapple many years ago when we were first dating and our bars are full of them. So I didn't really think about that. Maybe I need to go research <laughs> yeah. it. Ask him what his true intentions were. <laughs> that was fabulous. I love the idea. And like the 
key parties are interesting as well. I think they're more of an urban legend rather than a reality. But that was the idea that you'd go to a big party, put your key in a bowl and whoever is key you take out, that's who you go off and have sex with. And I think that works really well in theory. Reality wise might be a bit of a different story. Yeah, well, it's a bit like when people tell their tales of dogging episodes, isn't it? And they sort of, they get their courage up just to jump in this car. And they've seen a silhouette of someone and they think they'll be relatively okay. And then they get in and they think, I don't want to have sex with this person. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's a kind of, there's kind of a trajectory around from the key parties to kind of, you know, dogging in cars. Certainly where I come from in Yorkshire, there's lots of that. <laughs> something I knew about even, it was like local gossip growing up, this, beautiful natural park that I lived opposite had a little dogging car park and you must only walk one way around it and all these kinds of things I love what so, I love about the dog and stuff is it has its own language basically of like completely. you know two flashes of the car lights mean this <laughs> and if you w- roll the window down this amount it means this like I, it's a whole secret little language that sprung up in a very secretive community so it's fascinating how people communicate that they need a gangbang through lights <laughs> like flashing the lights and stuff <laughs> exactly it's wild yeah I think Ireland has a few spots as well that are definitely known for you wouldn't go down there on your own at night time basically for for things like that but um and Mary Whitehouse she so for anyone who doesn't know she wasn't she the campaigner against like mini skirts and things like this yeah she come she campaigned against all sorts of things I think the thing she's best known for in Britain was campaigning for a different watershed in the UK so she and she also campaigned for um certain things just be outright banned like she resurrected that debate about lady chatterley's lover for example which surely we had put to bed so to speak several years before and you know a a court had actually ruled what's the what's the ruling that the justice said something like oh you know if you wouldn't show it to you there was something about saying like if you wouldn't show it to your your women or servants or something like that then you shouldn't you shouldn't shouldn't have it in your household but ultimately they decided that was it was okay to have it so um yeah, Mary Whitehouse went sort of banging on about that again. <laughs> it's like, well, we settled this one, Mary. Come on. Yeah. But she she was a very important figure because she was quite old when she was doing her campaigning. So she was always seen as kind of behind the times. But I think what we mustn't lose sight of is that she represents a very coherent body of conservative thought with a small c that is still prevalent today and increasingly prevalent in some aspects of society. And, you know, at the time she was sort of laughed at, but actually, as we've kind of moved through history, she's remained quite significant. And if you go back to those debates, they very clearly mark out the lines we still have today around pro and anti openness around sexuality. So they're actually really good to study if you're a student in any way of of censorship. Yeah, and I suppose they're they're wrapped up in that idea of, um, I remember reading a quote, and it's totally escaped my brain right now where I read it but it was women who said actually the whole free love revolution I didn't even enjoy it because men all of a sudden expected to have casual sex with no promise of relationships or marriage or anything like that so this woman was saying she then had to deal with like a a soiled relationship or a soiled reputation and the fact that there is pressure to have that one night stand and to be feel liberated around it and she was like actually I don't feel any of that so I think there's there's something in that to kind of add into Mary Whitehouse I think a little bit like it wasn't yeah I mean no it wasn't all bad and I think if you look back to that period in the 70s and remember that 
obviously throughout history we've had had discussions about feminism and women's rights and you know we had mary wollstonecraft and then we've had the suffragettes and then we've had the bloomsbury set and we've had lots of people talk intimately about what women should have and what they should be allowed to do and how they should be treated for doing those things but i think mary whitehouse did make a good point which was that without realizing it she made a good point which was that at this time at the, in the 1970s it was the first time most ordinary people had ever talked or thought or heard about feminism if they did at all during this time but actually sex and free love came before that conversation so if you have free love without feminism is it even a good kind of free love like i mean to me it's not it's not very appealing because exactly like you say it means that men are just kind of getting sex all on their terms at those times because we there's not really a good conversation about patriarchy going on like we have now no absolutely not and i suppose that was at the time as well of the golden age of porn so we had deep throat coming out changing the world and women's clitorises were apparently located in their throats and the only way to touch it was to give blowjobs which spoiler alert the clitoris is not in the throat <laughs> um you will be on a fruitless mission if you try it that way but i suppose that idea of again it's like oh it's just casual sex it's fine and again like without the feminism or like the conversations about contraception and sti and things like that if you don't empower people to educate themselves in that area it's, it falls a little hollow and I suppose the 80s kind of brought that into like a sharp shock because you had all that this alleged free love and then the 80s saw um, the first cases of HIV and AIDS being diagnosed and it was just viewed as this horrendous thing if you got it you'd be dead in a few months and you know the campaigns were basically don't have sex you'll die which is obviously quite a terrifying um, thing and some people viewed it as massive everybody quotes here a gay disease which obviously it's it's not it affects absolutely everyone who has sex you're at risk that kind of thing so how did dating and the messages come into that then of like you know this very dangerous scary kind of time for people yeah really good question so in the 80s I think it's almost it's interesting because when we talk about the HIV the AIDS crisis in the 80s we focus very rightly so on the LGBT community, specifically gay men, actually, and how they dealt with it and how they were discriminated against because of them being infected. You know, the fact that when there was the first outbreak in San Francisco, everybody in the hospitals just refused to treat them. So all these volunteer medics came forward and made these kind of makeshift hospitals to look after the community. And people were literally dying on the way to hospital. There's this incredible BBC documentary, I think it's called I think it's called like San Francisco Year Zero, I think, but okay. I'll double check that. But it's really about that time and about people remembering their partners and lovers just dying in the car as they were driving them to hospital. It's just, it's so moving. But as a result of us focusing on that, and again, rightly so that we do, we haven't really talked about how straight people felt about sex at the time. So there was so much gossip and rumor going around sexuality and and people were having sex, but in a quite a fearful way. And I think they were having less penetrative sex. Again, we didn't really measure it, so it'd be hard to, it'd be hard to kind of speculate now, but certainly if you look at the women's magazines of the time when they start to talk about AIDS and is it gonna affect you and who you shouldn't sleep with and what men you shouldn't go near, you see this kind of prejudice seeping through society. And again, a message on women, don't have sex, look after yourselves, don't spread this illness. So it's interesting that, yeah, we don't, we don't really talk about that because we want to focus on what our gay brothers and sisters lost as a result of that pandemic, that era. But actually, in the straight community, there was a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation at the time and a lot of fear. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think like quite a demonization of bisexual people because they're viewed as traitors or going into the gay world and bringing back this disease to the straight world, which is obviously horrific in so many ways to have that. But I think that affected um, bisexual women quite a lot, I think. It's interesting because I'm making a series at the moment about bisexuality for Virgin Radio. And one of the things we examine is why is it that we feel I'm bisexual and why is it that we feel that we we haven't quite had the political moment maybe that the L, the G and the T have within the acronym. And I wonder sometimes if the AIDS moment put us on a back foot because people became so afraid to say they were bi because then they were, like we say, they were they were a traitor and a transmitter and they were crossing communities in some ways. That maybe there's an element of us just thinking, well, we should never really talk too much about bisexual health and bisexual endeavors or activities because we actually might turn people against us from all aspects, you know, from the queer community and the straight community. So I always wonder about that. But yeah, I mean, bisexuals although they there's always this kind of attention and press given to them that they have the best of all worlds and they you know have all the options and they they can pass if they want astray and all these things they have their own problems which is that they do suffer really deeply from mental health issues they tend to come out later and they tend not to be trusted by people across like we say the lgbt and or the lg and t spectrum and the straight spectrum so their problems are not as visible and they are, they don't experience the same kind of violence on a day-to-day front maybe that some other people do that are queer but they certainly suffer in different ways so you know it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that there are more people coming out as bi now and this debate about whether it's better to use the term pansexual to describe yourself because bi is seen as binary uh, it, it, it's all very fascinating stuff, but I sort of feel like when we talk on my podcast, Bisexual Brunch, about the plight of bisexuals, whether it's positive or negative, there's still a lot of things that we haven't really drawn any conclusions around, whereas I feel that maybe in certain aspects of queer life, we have kind of clearer boundaries or clearer things established for ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We had um, Ellen Reid on the podcast recently and she was talking about bisexualities and, you know, the plurality of it and stuff. So that's a fascinating look. And I suppose, like, that representation of bi people in in pop culture, it's generally, like, in porn quite a lot of time when two two girls are going at it and a man arrives in and suddenly they're both bi and everything's fine. And it's like, "Mm, that's not really reality (laughs) (laughs) a lot of cases and stuff but um the the pop culture was a representation of, of dating in the 90s you know it got a bit wilder but still wasn't very inclusive of different um sexualities like it was very hetero so we had um sex in the city coming out and you write in the book about how that you know it was great in one sense because it introduced things like the rampant rabbit which is a vibrator that if anyone's listening please do not use it if it's made out of jelly toys that isn't that's asking for a thrush infection a yeast infection but that that really focused on heterosexuality quite a lot but it's still kind of empowered some people although i really think it did not age very well i look back at it now no. and go oh this is actually quite terrible oh. it's quite cringy isn't it because i yeah. remember absolutely loving it when mm. i was about I probably came to it a bit later than it was out. I was probably about 16 when I was watching it, thinking about it now. And I remember just thinking, who are these old women and what do they think they're, and you know, I'm sort of older than they were now. And now I look back and I think, oh, they're all so gorgeous. I, obviously not the point of it, but well, the point of it on one level actually. But I suppose this the sort of untold stories around dating in the 90s really were around the LGBT community and the fact that they were forging new paths 
for ways to meet one another online. So, you know, the invention of things like Messenger and ICQ and um, anybody remembers that? I mean, I know about it from history, not because I think my <laughs> mum used it when I was a child, but I don't remember using it myself. Um, and the first message boards where you could actually post adverts and say, hey, this is what I'm looking for, would love to chat to, you know, the M for M and the F for F and all those things, they, they originated in the 90s. So what the, the beginning of the internet was really good for doing was allowing marginalized communities to meet each other and to form bonds. And obviously the dating apps that we have now originated out of that beginning, that early online culture. So it's really important if you're looking at the history of dating to remember that we owe our queer brothers and sisters a hell of a lot because they basically paved the way for us to meet the way we do on Tinder today. I can imagine like a big statue memorial of gay messages. <laughs> Certainly in San Francisco, yeah. I can yeah. definitely imagine that being in, uh, in uh, yeah, that Silicon Valley somewhere. Yeah, it absolutely <laughs> has to be a thing. And like dating apps is like the world we live in now. Like you're spoiled for choice with the amount of dating apps out there. It feels like new ones just pop up on a, a constant basis. Um, But th there's pros and cons I suppose to both of them they, they've been very handy during the pandemic when we haven't been able to date in person but at the same time like we can be very quick to judge I think we make judgments online at like one tenth of a second so if you're swiping that fast it's like that one initial first picture like there's a lot of pressure on that to do the heavy work of representing you as a person but we're not like seeing people as really human you're just going oh I don't like that color hair oh I don't like their belt mm. oh, I don't like this and it's like it, it just feels quite sterile sometimes as good as it is in other areas but yeah more to think about I think I think one of the problems with swiping is well actually let's talk about broad brush designate uh, design of dating apps so some of the earliest dating apps that came out tinder I'm sorry I have to name it and and some of the others which I won't name you know they they were based on kind of fruit machine technology so they were gamified so what they wanted to do was uh, spike your endorphins spike your dopamine when you were on them a bit like exactly how fruit machines work you put some money in you get excited you pull the handle down ooh, 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 is it going to be like a triple x or whatever and then you know <laughs> it's like a cherry a lamb and a tree and you haven't won anything you're out of pocket and then you think well it can't be any worse i'm going to go again so that that there's something about that that is very um that is very much replicated in, in the kind of most basic design of dating apps and Dr. Helen Fisher, who is the lead researcher at Match, uh, she has said that we get cognitive overload past about five to nine swipes on a dating app. So if we want to make a good decision, we shouldn't swipe any more than about five, six times. And that past that, we start to actually be impaired in our cognitive function and our appreciation of people well that so, makes perfect sense yeah because like I've been there and you're just like it's it's mindless it's mindless and then completely like, you will find someone and you're like you've automatically swiped the wrong way because you you it's just muscle memory and you're like oh no yeah. I want to get them back but it's kind of like gene theory as well so like whenever I go shopping for jeans I hate it because I walk in and I'm like there's too much choice I get the worst shopping in the world for every human oh I? I hate it because you're just like right do I want skinny jeans and then they all fit different in each <laughs> each shop and I'm like do I want bootcut jeans like what do I actually want and then I just usually leave without buying anything because I just I'm so exactly. overwhelmed because there's too much choice in it so I think it kind of we're very easily overwhelmed as humans when we have too much choice I, I think yeah yeah and I mean yeah. like the point was that all this choice was meant to break down boundaries so you know if you could choose somebody in Lanzarote 
or I don't know, Dubai, then you were going to kind of broaden the pool of people you had choice of choosing. But the reality is that actually, if somebody lives that far away, you know, uh, long distance relationships don't have the best statistics in their favor unless they're already pre-established relationships or somebody's in a long-term partnership and then they have to spend a period of time apart and they can maintain over that distance still very strenuous but forging a relationship over distance as many people found out in the 90s when they first thought icq was all you know for meeting somebody on the other side of the world well it doesn't really work and i think you know when we look at the technology that we've embraced it's not always the technology that's best for us it's the technology from an app perspective that has made them the most money there is an increasing debate in the dating app community about um about the ethics of how they have created dating technology and what would be better for people and obviously they're still out to make cash they're businesses but how can they do that in a more pleasing and appreciative way for people that isn't going to rinse their dopamine and leave them feeling used and leave them feeling depressed about dating and it's interesting because while dating app usage is going up and the number of dating apps coming out is increasing dating app users are becoming increasingly cynical at the moment about being online and that will definitely turn around because the dating apps have figured that out and they're kind of trying to do a U-turn with their uh, technology. But we're in this weird period where actually, in a way, the pandemic saved dating apps because it made people realise, oh, we desperately need to connect and online is the only way. But if we hadn't had the pandemic, it would be would have been interesting to see how how much the reputation or the expectations of apps plummeted even further. Now, like I said, users are still increasing. So, you know, it's not really from a business perspective, it's like, oh, well, we'll just carry on what we're doing, but we'll just attend to these few people that are feeling a bit shortchanged by us. But I think for dating apps to survive long-term, they will have to have a very different mechanism in order to retain their users and to retain interest in them. I, I definitely yeah there's there's a lot of food for thought in that and I think the pandemic like you said has changed so much of, of, of that aspect and I mean at the start of the pandemic we had blind dating apps and I, I hate the word blind dating it's very ableist and I, I don't know what, what a, a non-ableist expression is for for blind dates with dates where we don't see the other person until it's it's not I was gonna say too late there but maybe in some cases it's too <laughs> late there but you know the apps came out and they were like you know you could talk to someone without actually um seeing them or you'd see like a blurred vision or something and that kind of coincided with um shows on this topic on Netflix and stuff was it love is blind I think and I think that's yeah. coming back at the moment for an extra season but they seem to be massive hits and I think maybe people felt a little bit freer from that expectation of I'm going to make that snap judgment in two seconds because you're wearing a dodgy belt or something like that you know you got you actually got to know the person a little bit more yeah it's fascinating because if you look at I mean when you look at kind of human biology we make a decision in a second about whether we fancy somebody or find them attractive or not so if you take away that are you basically only suspending that judgment for the moment that the mask comes off do you know what i mean yeah, so yeah. Th there's an element of well it's all well and good but actually we're going to do that anyway but there's something about what happens online which is dehumanizing. So whereas if you go to a pub or a bar and you see somebody they start talking to you and you don't find them attractive, but they're perfectly nice and you might talk to them for a bit longer, online you've just swiped immediately. Well, is that a case of saving you time and them time? Or is it a case of making everybody just feel a bit rubbish about the experience? That's good. You know, it's kind yeah. of it's kind of all, but 
you know, from an ethical perspective, it, it's quite a good question to pose. And it's one that the dating apps sort of throw back at us. If it's in our biology and chemistry and nature to make a judgment anyway, aren't we just saving you time? Well, I don't know. Oh, yeah, there's something in that. I, I mean, my, yeah. my dating rule was always like, don't go longer than a week um, before you meet up with them. Because I've had dates, you know, where it's like online, we've been great and everything's like, oh, this person's going to be really fun. And then literally the second they walk in, I'm like, no. There's Absolutely just, not. It's not happening well, here. I, I suppose one of the other things that we don't talk about much is pheromones and this, you know, it's kind of nascent research and there's a slightly eugenic, like a eugenics aspect to it. So we don't really want to go too far down into it, but, or have it fall into the wrong hands, so to speak. But there's this idea that actually we have a kind of attraction to someone's pheromones and the more different their pheromones are to ours the better because it indicates something different about their dna so it means that we would never mate with somebody who's kind of in our family basically there's quite a solid biological argument for it but what we've never really done is kind of smell dating and it's very difficult i was pitching a tv show about this a while ago and um the producers were like we love it but the problem is how would we see it represented on tv it's quite difficult to show you just have to these have these like ooh moments you know a bit like you have in uh fabric conditioner ads or something like that that's all you could really show but there's something to be said for um getting a little patch test done like maybe receiving samples of what people smell like through the post via a dating <laughs> app and then sniffing those first and then deciding to go on a date with them or not which would actually potentially give us a better indication than what they looked like about whether we would find them attractive Mm, I, well, there you go there's a new Netflix idea for you there to, to <laughs> I just need to refine it yeah, yeah I'm sort of like I just haven't figured out what it how do you make smell look like something I don't know yeah. somebody out there will have the answer I'm sure I went to an event in um LA years back body st storytelling and what they did was got t-shirts from people and put them in plastic bags and you could go up and, and sniff them and write down <laughs> yeah. which one and they, they match people that way but I never found out if it if they were successful matches so I must get that person on the podcast to discuss oh, it's, so Dixie Delator who yes. runs body she's a friend of mine I used to live in San Francisco so I she used to persuade me to go and do body oh, and I absolutely loved it it's just the funniest night out ever. I'm always yeah. trying to get her to come to London, but I know at the minute it's not That'd the best be time. But she should come to she'd definitely come to Europe and do it. But um you should get you should get Dixie on the podcast because she she remembers everything that happens at the end of these escapades and she remembers everyone Brilliant. that body is matched and etc she could have a body wall in her office full of people that have stayed together as a result of meeting through that that would be through epic. body so you should definitely <laughs> yeah. talk to her i will i will sort that out for sure well and, and just speaking before we finish up um one of my kind of obsessions is watching um naked attraction so talking about senses we're very much on yeah. the visual sense what are your thoughts on that and for the people who don't know what dating attraction or naked attraction sorry is it's basically five people in a box and each round the box lifts up and you see genitals and then you see chest and then you see face and then you get to hear them um, and you whittle them down to, to two and then they get to see you naked and then you make their choice so I suppose it's the idea of matching people on a very visual very superficial level you don't get to know much about their personality or anything like that so what, what are your thoughts on that show and would you go on it well, not when you're married, but... <laughs> well, I'm not, I mean, I am married now, but I probably would have gone on it, actually, because I don't really mind getting my kit off. I love a nudist beach. <laughs> and um, I drag my husband... Well, he doesn't need to be dragged, actually. He enjoys it, too. <laughs> but I do love a nudist beach. So, like, yeah. Um, I think my problem is that I'd... <laughs> it sounds really strange, but going on the pheromone stuff, I wish they could sort of smell the person or sense a bit more about them. Maybe because we don't really understand things about, like, mirror neurons, for example, which biologists talk about. 
this idea that when we look at somebody, things kind of flash back and forth. We don't really understand how they work, but we we have um we have a feeling of a connection sometimes through mirror neurons going off. And so I wondered if we couldn't have some kind of like pinholes for eyes. So you couldn't see the whole face, but you would have a connection with pupils and like what that did. Cause I think that'd be quite fascinating. That would be good. I, yeah. I think the problem for me with a naked attraction is I do, I love a bit of fun around dating and I love that people are willing to go on it, especially when they're older as well, or maybe they're not the most conventionally attractive people. I just feel that the show is slightly overproduced so that the people that they do the research on are just always the wild cards that kind of get spun out there. Or alternatively, they look very much one way and then they're very much the other. So I just find that stuff is a tiny bit basic for me. But I would, I wish they could play around a bit more with the format of what other elements of the person, like, you know, give them a t-shirt to smell or let them like look at each other's literal eyes and nothing else. Like little things like that, I think would be really interesting to test. Do 100%. it as a bit more of a science experiment. I think that's why I would like it. Yeah. It that way. Like you could go up because they'll be like sweating slightly under the studio right. lights. So they have like, their pheromones are like going. You could literally so. do like sweaty armpit tests live, but not show any rest of their body, just the yeah. arm going up and the smell. Like I think that, and then the reaction, I think that'd be so fun. That would be fascinating. Well, there we go. We're, we're going to get rich off this new uh, <laughs> idea that we're going to have there so um Nikki's been fascinating talking to you I just love this history of dating because it's it's important history you know it, it there's so much in it between culture and sexuality and gender and yeah property rights and everything else like that which is fascinating um so I'd urge you, the readers to go pick up the book it's called the curious history of dating from Jane Austen to tinder and you can buy it pretty much anywhere now at this stage right you can, and the paperback is coming out in January. So if you'd okay. rather buy a paperback, then just hold on. You won't remember if I tell you now, but I've got to say it anyway <laughs> for the for the publisher. But yeah, it's it's available from all good bookshops and anywhere you would buy it online. Perfect, brilliant. And where can people find you if they want to reach out and follow your work? Yeah, so I have a terrible website. Don't use that. It's really old-fashioned and out of date. And I don't, does anybody look at websites anymore? Not really. Go to my socials. I'm at Nikki Hodgson, which is N-I-C-H-I-H-O-D-G-S-O-N on Instagram and Twitter. Perfect. Fabulous. And sometimes a bit of political commentary mixed in with the sex stuff. <laughs> I do. Like, you know. Weirdly, I've worked for Sky News for, for nearly 10 years as a, as a, as a political commentator because that's what I started out doing, politics. But uh the reason I stopped doing it is because I, when I went to Westminster, I realised it was just loads of gossip. So I thought, well, why not do the other stuff that people think is gossip, which is actually science and politics and culture, which is sex. <laughs> so I've reversed it. But yeah, yeah if, you, if you look on the surface, it all looks very strange. But I know what I'm doing anyway. It's, uh, politics and sex always go hand in hand <laughs> quite a lot, whether As they you like well it know, Caroline, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, listen, it's been fantastic. Thanks, Emil, for chatting to me today. You're welcome. Thanks, Mel. And thanks, Mel, to all my listeners. Happy dating adventures. If that's the stage you are in your life at the moment, grab um, Nikki's book and I can kind of guide you along and maybe give you some tips as well. So like I said, if you want to reach out about the podcast, the Instagram and Twitter is at West Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. And I'll chat to you next week.